Hey y'all, this is Paige speaking and ready to start you out on podcast number three, Civil Justice 101. In the first episode, we went over civics review led by Sarah, criminal justice led by Angie. Now you have me with Civil Justice 101. And then next we'll be with um, Kira on judicial policymaking. So stand by and get ready for the next episode. So my question to begin with for you all is, what do you think civil justice is? How would you define it? How do you think it's used? Is it different from country to country? Well, I took the time to go ask and interview a few citizens to see what they thought civil justice was. So let's see what they had to say. All right, I'm here with Missy, and we're going to see what she thinks civil justice is. Go for it, Missy. Okay, so civil justice would be, I'm assuming, normal people who aren't law enforcement, like, trying, I don't know what civil justice is. No idea. All right. No idea. I'm here with Rudy, and we're going to see what he thinks civil justice is. Okay, so... I know what criminal justice is. When I think of civil justice, I think of like civil liability or like somebody um, somebody was wronged due to somebody's negligence or something and you're like, uh, you're taking it to court or small court or, or uh, whatever, you, whatever you need to do to settle your differences um, in a judicial manner. And now I'm here with Cece, and let's see what her take of civil justice is. Um, I would assume it's just like uh, the civilians and populations taking things into their own hands. That's all I got. All right, I'm here with Rob, and we're going to see what his take on civil justice is. All right, so as I understand it, the U.S. justice system is broken into two different sections, criminal justice and civil justice. Criminal justice is where the government, uh, when you commit a crime, the government takes you to task on that uh, and charges you. And uh, civil justice is when individuals take each other to court over little things, so your Judge Wapner and Judge Judy, things like that. The difference uh, is that criminal justice, it's uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and civil justice is the preponderance of evidence, which is easier to prove than beyond a reasonable doubt. So what exactly is civil justice then? Nobody seems to quite know or how to pinpoint it. Well, according to the National Center for State Courts, the civil justice system in the United States is arguably the most complex and comprehensive in the world. It involves state and federal statutes, regulations, and common law that guide governmental, commercial, and personal decision-making in areas of consumer safety, employment, and other contractual relationships, the sale of goods and services, and that's only to name a few. So now that I've explained what civil justice is according to the National Center for State Courts, I'm going to explain what civil justice means in layman's terms. And that covers areas such as small claims courts, employees' rights, family practice law, rental disputes, and the list can continue on. Basically, civil justice pertains to all legal issues not directly considered criminal. 
So now that we've established a baseline as to what civil justice is, let's dig deeper and learn what it's really about. In this podcast, we are going to not only learn about our civil justice system in the here in the U.S., but also learn about how Sweden operates as a comparison. All right, so let's roll right into it. We'll start out with Sweden's employment law. Their system for tackling employee and employer disputes who are in a contractual agreement seems rather straightforward. The two parties must settle their issues by negotiation, and if that cannot happen, the dispute moves on to the labor court as a last resort. The European Judicial Network states that those are only two methods to solve an issue by contracted parties. However, for other disputes, mediation is a possibility through Sweden's National Office of Mediation, whose work is enforced by the government's statutes. Mediation in employment law can be used for employers and employees who cannot agree on terms dealing with wages or general terms of conditions. Another instance where mediation could come into play is when a company refuses to sign an agreement with a professional organization. The National Mediation Office can offer the parties in a dispute a a mediator that they believe will be be effective upon the party's request, or they can step and assign a mediator if they believe the situation isn't improving and mediation is a viable solution. Some private businesses will go out of their way to hire mediators before a true dispute emerges. Many insurance companies involve mediators in their claim processes, especially when they believe the claim will, be, will require a large settlement or may be fraudulent. The mediation process is a non-binding as it is in the U.S., but it seems to work well and keep many cases out of further court proceedings. Sweden also has many similar employment laws to the U.S. that protect its citizens' rights. An example of a few of the acts which are comparable to the U.S. laws are the Swedish Parental Leave Act, the Whistleblowing Act, and the Working Hours Act. The Swedish Parental Leave Act goes over who has the right to use this act, which includes parents, legal guardians, and those fostering children. The Swedish Parental Leave Act seems to offer more leniency to their new mothers compared to the U.S. The act states a woman has the right to at least seven weeks of leave prior to delivery and seven weeks after and it can be extended if the mother chooses to breastfeed or opts to take on work a quarter of the time, half the time, or three quarters of the time, and the mother is given up to 18 months of leave with her job saved for her. The same is offered for mothers who adopt. This Parental Leave Act is generous compared to the U.S.'s Family and Medical Leave, which offers mothers 12 weeks of unpaid leave annually for those working for larger businesses. The Whistleblowing Act in Sweden covers those considered employees by a company, including those who are under temporary contracts. The Act covers those who are inter- who internally whistleblow, meaning an employee reports an issue using the company's human resources departments, which looks into a complaint and attempts to resolve the issue from within. Protection is also given to workers who report an issue to an employee organization, such as a union, for assistance in resolving a matter. The third category category for protection for an employee bringing an issue to light is for an external resource. This means the employee may take the issue to the police or another government entity to investigate and step in. The employees that are valid whistleblowers are also protected from reprisal for bringing legal issues of a company to attention. If the employee does feel that they are being punished for their actions, they can raise the issue and the company is burdened with establishing proof that reprisals did not occur. 
The U.S. has very similar laws set for those employed in the country. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration established the OSHA Act in 1970, which protects whistleblowers from discriminating against employees who choose to exercise their rights under 22 federal laws. And these laws basically align with those Sweden has, giving employees the same rights and protections. Now on to the Swedish Working Hours Act. This act first annotates those who are not covered in this protection, and a few of those exempt include those who work in an employer's home, those who work aboard a ship, or employees who are in charge of making their own work schedules are a few examples. The act then goes into describing the acceptable standard full-time working hours, which is like the U.S., and is a standard average of 40 hours per week. It also states that on-call time can be claimed up to 48 hours over four weeks or up to 50 hours over the month. These numbers are the same amounts allowed for overtime, but holds a maximum amount of 200 hours per year. What I did not see in the Swedish Act was the amount of the Swedish would be compensated for working the overtime hours. As in the U.S., the standard overtime pay is generally set at time and a half. The act then also establishes the minimum amount of rest the Swedish workers are entitled to receive between shifts, which was 11 consecutive hours over a 24-hour period. I thought it was also neat that the act specifically covered those who worked the night shift and acknowledging the negative mental and health implications which came with the night shift, which I can completely understand from working a night shift. It takes its toll, especially switching from night to day. The act then limits night workers to an eight-hour shift in a 24-hour period. And overall, I thought this was one of the most thought-out acts I've read, giving workers great consideration for their well-being. In the U.S., it seems that the minimum considerations are given to workers with companies being able to work their employees to the bone if it benefits them. All right, I may have rambled on a bit now. Sarah will bring you into a few aspects of Sweden's family court system and how it operates. To step you all through the process of how a situation would be handled in Sweden's system, let's use the example of two separated parents arguing over custody time and arrangements with their kids. The court system gives the disputing parents, let's say Sven and Susie, two options before they enter into court proceedings. The first option is cooperation discussions, and the second is family counseling. Sven and Susie decide that they will give cooperation discussions a try first. They meet with an expert who is trained to resolve family disputes, and the expert's aim is to get the two parents to understand each other's viewpoint a little bit more so a compromise can be made when it comes to the custody of their children. The expert will also coach them on how to interact with each other without creating a negative atmosphere around their kids. Sadly, Sven and Susie were unable to reach an agreement on custody through cooperative discussions and chose to move on to family counseling in an attempt to resolve their issues before court. Luckily, the cooperation services were free to them and they didn't have to travel outside of their local municipality. Sven and Susie arrived at family counseling, which was also located in their local municipality, but now it's on their own dime. The family counseling is offered to couples before, during, or after a separation to help the heads of the family look deeper into what is driving their issues and try to wrinkle those issues out for the good of the whole family. Fortunately, Sven and Susie were able to come to a custody agreement after an extensive amount of family counseling and are able to avoid court proceedings, which would have decided their fate for them. Now they are looking forward to their future as co-parents to their two darling daughters, Ella. 
In the U.S., we have the Federal Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction and Enforcement Act, which summarized as a series of laws enacted to prevent interstate parental kidnapping, promote uniform jurisdiction, and enforce visitation rights. This act was created in hopes that each state would choose to adopt its policies because most family laws in the U.S. are left to the states to determine, and every state in the U.S. did adopt its policies. This has become a large issue here in the states. According to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, one million kids each year are affected by their parents divorcing, and of parents who are married this year, half will be divorced by the time their child or children turn the age of 18. The family court system in the U.S. takes a similar route in dealing with parental disputes over custody issues as Sweden. They begin with encouraging the parents to work out a plan amongst themselves initially, and if that fails, the couple move on to a civil court system to resolve any unsettled disputes. Um, These disputes will actually move to family law or juvenile courts, depending on the situation. In Minnesota specifically, there are two types of custody, legal and physical. Legal custody refers to the right to make decisions about how to raise the child, including decisions about education, health care, and religious training. Physical custody refers to the right to make decisions about routine day-to-day activities of the child and where the child lives. In many cases, parents may share custody, which is referred to as joint custody, and for children who have one parent in charge of them, physical and or legally is considered sole custody. When parents do take their custody issues to court, it is strongly recommended that each party seek counsel unless they are fully knowledgeable of all the laws and rules of the court pertaining to their dispute. The courts here in the U.S. do not require the parental parties to seek mediation prior to entering the court system like Sweden does. The courts here in the U.S. also require the parents to pay all attorney and court fees they encounter. However, for low-income individuals, public assistance may be provided if deemed eligible. And now back to Kira discussing rental disputes. We are now on to how the Swedish civil justice system deals with the rental disputes in their country. The Swedish seem to love the idea of mediation and compromise, but it seems to work for them. This remains true in when it comes to their rental and tenancy disputes. If the landlord and tenant cannot reach an agreement among themselves, they can choose to bring the matter to their regional rental tribunal, which assists in dissolving the dispute. The two parties also don't need to agree to approach the rental tribunal or the other can bring the matter forward for assistance. The rental tribunal will then hear out the dispute, mediate, and then make a proposal agreement for both parties to review. If the proposed agreement does not satisfy both parties, the tribunal will make their recommendations and attempt to coincide in some cases. If none of these steps satisfy the disputing parties, the matter goes to court and the judge will then decide the case. In the U.S., the rental and housing disputes are again mainly left to the states to maintain order and discipline. In Minnesota, the rights and duties of landlords and tenants are spelled out in federal law, state statutes, local ordinances, safety and housing codes, common law, contract law, and a number of court decisions. There is a handbook for landlord and tenants in Minnesota that outlines the legal rights of each. This handbook is also a guide which explains to a tenant how to go about resolving any issues with a landlord. The Office 
of Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison has the resources easily acceptable for all and even gives the link to the website Homeline, which I learned about in this legal studies class. The link gives a complainant the forms needed to file their grievance with the court after unsuccessfully attempting to resolve their issues between themselves and the landlord. If the issue is pressed to court, it goes into housing court or conciliation court, which is another term for small claims court. Small claims court gives individuals the chance to reclaim small sums without a lawyer and their substantial fees. The housing court process in the U.S. seems to be more orientated towards litigation and resolving matters in court compared to the Swedish system. Sweden appears to take great pride in their ability to mediate issues before taking disputes before the court. In this podcast, we have learned that what civil justice means, examples of how it is used, and how civil justice in the U.S. compares to civil justice in Sweden. I must say that I find Sweden's civil justice system to be more conscious of its citizens when it comes to their rights in employment law. I feel like the U.S. could take some notes on making the Americans' work environment more comfortable and just. I also think that Sweden's family law focused more on the rehabilitation of families and stressed how important it is for co-parents to have a mutual understanding and respect for each other in order to raise their children in a healthy environment. I think the U.S. family court seems rather cold and unpersonable, like it's another case that needs to be pushed through and dealt with rather than actually resolved to the root of the issue. The issues of the rental and housing disagreements seem to be on par for both countries. Mediation is the initial step, and if it continues from there, the judge decides the case. Well, that is the end of our podcast, Civil Justice 101. I hope it was informative and interesting. I hope you all have a swell day.